I don't think there's anybody here in church this morning who doesn't want to make the really best they most possibly can out of their lives. And the advice over the years has been quite consistent. Work hard at school, get a good education, do A-levels, go on to university or college if you can, get a good job, get yourself on the housing ladder, knuckle down, be honest and hard-working. We can all hear a teacher or two somewhere in the back of our heads go, work harder, boy, make something of yourself, lad. And the bedrock of successful Middle England has always been the three R's. You can't get on without them. Reading, writing and arithmetic. The essential firm foundation, we are told, for a successful life. Nobody seems to worry that arithmetic begins with an A and writing with a W, but there it is. Well, if you've joined us for today, we're delighted to have you with us. If you've been travelling with us over these last six weeks, we've been delighted that you've been able to share in that too. For over these last six, seven weeks, we've been looking at the last hours that Jesus spent with his disciples. And in particular, the things that he said in those final moments. He knew he was about to die. So these aren't just any words. He knew he was about to leave them. Which makes these words particularly special. They reveal his heart, his priorities, his longings for those first disciples. And now at the end of that evening, just moments before Judas returns to betray him with a kiss, Jesus prays. Who's he praying for? You might have expected him to pray for himself. And indeed he is. He's about to die a death unparalleled in its ability to inflict excruciating pain and lingering agony. A death unequaled in its ability to degrade and to humiliate. But for Jesus that was not for him the worst. For Jesus the pain of crucifixion was to be totally eclipsed by the searing pain that would pierce his soul, by the darkness into which he would be plunged, as he carried the evil, wickedness, selfishness of our world. The kind of ugly stuff that lies in you and in me. So you might expect him to pray for himself, and indeed he does, albeit briefly. He asks Father God if there be another way, if there's another way for all the wrong in this world to be dealt with, sorted out, resolved. Is there another way outside of the cross? But hear this, and listen especially this morning, if you are not sure how God feels about you, listen carefully. Jesus said, if there isn't, if there is no other way, I'll still do it. Well, heaven was silent. There was no other way, so Jesus went to the cross. But before he did, he prayed a little bit more. And John chapter 17, as Kevin has read to us, gives us an insight into these final moments before his arrest. What's he doing? Is he wallowing in self-pity? Is he consumed by his own suffering? Has he been overwhelmed with depression? Has a spirit of selfish egocentricity invaded his soul? No. He's praying. Praying for himself? No, not now. He's praying for his disciples. But that's not all. If you dare, listen in. As the cross loomed and heaven fell silent, you'll hear him praying for you. At the moment when Jesus had every right to think only of himself, 
At the time when the Son of God could have been forgiven for asserting that he is the centre of it all. That he really is the main man, the linchpin of creation, the one who holds it all together. At that moment, when he had every reason to see the world only from his perspective, he was thinking of you. Why? God is passionate about you. Like the beloved constantly in the mind of the lover, you are always on his mind. And even in these most precious moments, when humanly Jesus is under the greatest pressure humanity could put a man under, he stops to pray for you and for me. Jack Deere writes that many in church today are convinced that God is angry with them. They have no idea how crazy he is about them. If you're not sure whether you matter, and if you're not sure whether God is interested in you at all, see Jesus now. The shadow of the cross towering above him. Look and listen. He's praying for you. In fact, the Bible tells us as he hung on the cross, he had you in mind. Passionate about you. If there was a mountain to climb, he'd climb it. If there was an ocean to cross, he'd sail it. But there wasn't. There was a cross to be endured. And he endured it to the end. And in his prayer for us, in these final moments with his disciples, he gives us the real three R's of successful living. The three things that really matter when it's all said and done. The first relationship. He's praying for a relationship with you. That they may also be in us. He's longing that as he and the Father are so close to one another, that we might join them in that close, intimate, real way. In fact, Jesus said at the beginning of this whole prayer, real life, life that matters, eternal life, life that's worth living, is that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life was never meant to be lived alone. One of the most tragic moments in the whole of the history of mankind is written about almost at the beginning of the Bible. God had made this beautiful world, and all was light and love and life and laughter. But we're told that Adam and Eve chose to turn their back on God. Humanity chose to do their own thing, to go their own way. And suddenly all that was wrong entered the world and destroyed its beauty. And a huge gulf opened up between God and man. And when God came to them, Adam and Eve hid away. They hid away because they were naked and ashamed. And God cried out three words. Three penetrating, piercing words that have echoed around the universe ever since. Where are you? Where are you? And God cried not in anger, but in anguish. Adam, Eve, I love you. Where are you? And the same cry still, Paul, Susan, James, Alison, whatever your name, where are you? And this great gulf is breaking God's heart. And the lament, the shout from heaven, I love you, where are you? Love actually looks at love from a variety of perspectives. And two characters woven into that film are Daniel and his son Sam. Who in their different ways are struggling to cope because Daniel's wife, Sam's mother, has died. 
And Sam is struggling, but he's struggling even more with something else. Something much greater than the anguish of the loss of his mother. And he's withdrawn into himself. He's not speaking to anyone. He's not relating to his dad. And his dad's getting really concerned. Is he doing drugs? Is he suicidal? Whatever could be wrong, he's behaving so strange. And then there's this wonderful scene as they go out on a really bright, crisp, crisp, cold, clear morning. And they walk along the bank of the Thames and they sit down on a bench overlooking the Thames. And Sam begins to open up and to explain to his father what the trouble is. His dad thinking that his son is overcome with grief, being bullied at school or something worse. And eventually Sam says, I'm in love. The father's relief is palpable. I know I should be thinking about mum, Sam says, all of the time, and I am. But the truth is, I'm in love, and I was before she died, and there's nothing I can do about it. Okay, right, says dad. Well, I'm a little relieved. Why? Well, you know, I I thought there could have been something wrong, something worse. And then Sam says incredulously, worse, worse, worse than the total agony of being in love. No, says Dad, you're right. Total agony. Sam goes on to explain, she's the most popular girl in the school and she hates boys. She doesn't even know my name and even if she did, she'd despise me. She's the coolest girl in school and everyone worships her because she's heaven. The agony of Sam being in love with a girl who doesn't even know his name, this girl he adores who is out of reach beyond his grasp, that's the total agony of being in love for Sam. And it's a tiny, tiny glimpse of the agony in heaven of a God who loves you and longs for you and you don't even know it and you're living out of his reach, out of his grasp. Maybe you don't even know his name and the Bible says it's breaking God's heart. The total agony of being in love. Like a parent anxious at the window in the small hours, waiting for their child to come home. He's waiting for you. Longing for you. And just before he died, he prayed for you. And life will never make sense without him. It was never meant to. My job takes me to people at the best and the worst of times. Sometimes when people have been married for many years and one partner dies, the other is just totally bereft. They've spent their life together. They've lived with the person they were made for. And without that person, life is at best empty and cold. Life for them now without meaning and purpose. If God knows the total agony of being in love with no response from the beloved, then we are like that bereft partner. Struggling to live, to keep going, but without the person we were made for. Life will never make sense. He is the partner we were meant to have. Without him, life at best can only be empty and cold. There will always be something missing. And behind all the tears that fall in our broken world, are the tears for a partner, for the soulmate from heaven we were meant to have. And in the shadow of the cross, he prays. He prays that you would come to know him. He prays that you would know how much he loves you. There are many of us here who've come to understand that truth, that he loves me. And he loves me and there's nothing I can do to stop him loving me. And so the second R, for those of us who've discovered the first, is revelation. Revelation is helping people know. It's our job to let people know. 
And Jesus says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe. That's his longing that everyone should come to understand that he loves them and wants to know them. In fact, maybe it's no accident that immediately after the resurrection, Jesus says to them, go. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. And that's our job, both audibly by the things we say and visually by the things, the way we are and the things that we do, the things that people can see, because we are in him. If you want to be successful, and I think we all do, let's forget about profit and status and building bigger bars. Let's get our relationship with God right, the first R. And then live in such a way that through what you say and what you do, people can see the truth. People can see that Jesus has come and loved you and changed you. I tell you, at the end of it all, at the end of it all, when God says, how did it go? Suddenly all of this will seem much more important than promotion and profit or a house that comes straight out of home and gardens. Sister and brother are talking to each other. The little boy gets up and walks over to his grandpa and says, Grandpa, please make a frog noise. No. Please, please, please make a frog noise. No, I won't. Clear off. Go and play. Go and do something else. Little boy goes to his sister. Go and tell grandpa to make a frog noise. Little sister goes over to Grandpa. Grandpa, please, please, make a frog noise. No, clear off. I've told your brother no, and I'm telling you no. Why on earth do you want me to make a frog noise? Well, says the little girl, Mummy said that when you croak, we can all go to Disney World. (laughs) The third secret of a successful life is resurrection. Jesus is praying for our resurrection. Our life after death with him. Our lives here are but a twinkling. We'll soon all croak. We cling to this world as if it's all there is. C.S. Lewis summed it well. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus is longing for the day we will leave the mud slum for the holiday at the sea. Listen to his heart cry, almost these final words. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me. That's the longing that brings success on earth. It's my experience that the more we cling to what really matters, the more we understand that this world is fading away, the greater success we will make of our lives. And so Jesus ends this night with his disciples that we've taken seven Sundays and six small groups to explore together, bearing his heart. And above all else, he wants us to know that he loves us and he wants us to know him. His final words, I have made you known, this is his prayer to his Father, to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. His final words, that we might know his love, that we might know him. It's the longing that finds fulfilment when together on the other side of this world we will always be with him. This final meal 
Jesus had with his disciples in anticipation of the day when the feasting will never stop. There was a woman who'd been diagnosed with terminal illness. She'd been given three months to live. And she was getting everything in order and she went to see her pastor in order that he might understand her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted, which readings she wanted, the outfit that she wanted to be buried in, and how she wanted to be buried uh, with her favourite Bible. The pastor was about to leave when suddenly she remembered and she encouraged him to come back. This is really important, she said. Upbeat now, all of a sudden, quite excited. What's really important? I want to be buried with my fork in my right hand. The pastor stood, not sure what to say. That happens to pastors sometimes. Well, to be honest, I am a bit puzzled. And so she went on to explain, in all my years of attending church socials and suppers, I always remember that when the main dishes were being cleared away, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favourite part, because I knew that something better was coming, like velvety chocolate, cake or apple pie with cream, something wonderful and with substance. So she said finally, I just want people to see me lying there with my fork in my hand. And I want them to wonder, what's the fork there? And when they wonder what's the fork there, I want you to tell them, the best is yet to come. Hallelujah. 